Hello. Okay, okay, a little bit of excitement, that's good. Um, as Dylan said, I am the special guest tonight, which makes me feel really special. Um, excited to be here, excited to kick off the semester. Um, Brennan is not here, your pastor is absent, not by his own choice, he was forced by, I'm not gonna, I was gonna say something really mean. Um, he's finishing his last class to get his Master of Divinity, which is awesome. So he's in Indiana at Iowa, Indiana Western University, finishing off school. He misses you, he loves you, he wanted to be here. Um, but he, he called up the vet. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very certain he's watching. Um, but I'm excited to, to share. And, and when I get asked to preach, whether it's at Oasis or, or, or sometimes I preach in Watertown and I preached a couple times on Sunday morning here at Grace Point, I usually don't like when they say, hey, you can preach about anything. Where there's just this free range of you can talk about whatever you want, which is so dangerous. Because I would usually pick something insanely obscure. Something that's just like, I learned or I am learning and I'm trying to process and think through that like, oh man, we haven't talked about this in a while. Or I don't know if I've ever preached on this. Like, like, like this would be a time where in my own selfishness, I would want to talk about sex. I'm not just like, yeah, let's, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to start the spring semester. Boom. Let's open it up. Um, I'm not going to talk about sex tonight. <laughs> And as I was figuring out, like, man, God, literally, like, what's the word, right? 2023 is here. The spring semester is upon us. The Jacks are champions. Right? right? Skull Jacks. Um, it's like, <laughs> Vikings also won. Uh, I was like, what's the word? And I just didn't know. And so I was kind of looking back and evaluating, reviewing just what I kind of had been learning all of 2022. Every single sem uh, fall semester, I sit myself and I, and I stop myself and I pray through and I surrender. Okay, God, what are you asking me to dive into the next year? And so in 2021, the fall semester is like, God had pointed me very clearly, hey, I want you to go through the minor prophets. Go through the minor prophets. Once a month, there's 12 of them, fit perfectly. So I went through all the minor prophets last year, just slowly reading scripture and diving into commentary and reading things. And I don't know if you've taken time to actually like kind of assess and read through the minor prophets in the Old Testament of the Bible they get repetitive. It's the people of Israel has done something disobedient. They've been unfaithful. They've worshiping idols. God raises up a prophet, comes, hey, this is what you've done. Here's the judgment of God that's gonna happen. Here's the wrath that's gonna be bestowed upon you if you don't repent and return and be reconciled back to God. And then it's, here's the judgment that's gonna happen. Here's how you've been unfaithful. Here's where you've gone wrong. Here's where you've not trusted the Lord. Here's where he's asked you to and you've missed. And then every single amount of prophet, every time there comes a point as I'm reading it where God's character shows up, who he is. And you get a sense of hope, every one of them. A sense that God is gonna restore his people no matter what. And that was the story over and over again. So I thought there's no better way to kick off 2023 than to talk about maybe the most talked about theme in the church, which is God's love. And there's a specific scripture in Hosea. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Hosea. It's a minor prophet in the Old Testament. We're gonna be in chapter 11, uh, verses one through 11 eventually. And there was this just 
this teaching, this thought that I was, as I was kind of going through my own stuff at the beginning of, of, of 2022 through February and March, that I just kind of needed to read this and hear this and hear what God had to say about who he is, despite my own failings and, and my missing and my sin and my unfaithfulness and my lack of trust, that I just needed to hear a word ultimately about who God is. And so I was, I was, I was evaluating, man, what are we gonna bring tonight? What are we gonna share? This is what we're gonna talk about tonight, very simply. As you come into 2023, maybe you have a future of uncertainty on what's ahead on career or what school's gonna look like. Maybe this is your first time tonight and you transferred schools, welcome. We're gonna talk about what it looks like to trust, to rest, to remember God's love and faithfulness. Not because he's just keeping his side of a covenant, his side of a relationship that he said he was always gonna keep, but because God's love and faithfulness is not just an action he bestows, but it's literally a part of his character and who he is. He can't not be loving. He can't not be faithful. And this is the story of Hosea. I'm gonna pray, and then I'm gonna give you a little bit of background of Hosea, and we're gonna just kind of jump into the scripture. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for every single soul uh, who's here in this room tonight and those watching and those will, will watch in the future. God, we thank you ultimately that who you are doesn't change. You challenge us, you invite us in to relationship with you, you invite us in to your love, you challenge us to come back in different ways and moments where we lack trust, where we fall short. And God, we thank you for that. Allow your word just to speak clearly. Holy Spirit, thank you that you've already been at work and moving. Help us just be evident and present to what you have for us tonight. Open eyes, open ears, and obedient hearts to step in to what you are calling us to tonight. We love you, we praise you, it's in Jesus' name, amen. So, here in the time of, of when Hosea was being called up, was being raised up by God to be a prophet for the Israelites, what we had is the king of Israel was King Jeroboam, oh, I'm gonna mispronounce it, sorry, Jeroboam II, who through his reign, in the first part of his reign, had found success economically, financially, politically. He had found favor with the Israelites. He had found success. He, he, he had seemed to be blessed. And because he was blessed as a leader and as a king, all of Israel then therefore looked blessed. Things were going well in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Israel during this king's reign. And when things tend to go well, especially for the Israelites, they start to get threats from surrounding countries, from surrounding just, just neighbors, seeing that there's favor, something's happening, they're getting blessed, they seem to be growing, so it's like all of a sudden threats are gonna come in and wanna take what they have. And once the threats started coming, the leader, this king, but also the priests, the, pro, the priests specifically in the temple, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day of the Israelites, started turning to things and leading the people of Israel away from the very person who had blessed them in the first place. So instead of asking for refuge and protection as the threats were coming in from God, they asked it from neighboring countries and neighboring kings, powerhouses. When the threats would come, they wouldn't go to Yahweh and pray to the God who would be the ultimate refuge and strength, the one who had got them in the, this place of favor and blessing in the first place, they went to the surrounding countries and the people. Not only did they do that, 
they stopped worshiping God altogether and started worshiping idols. So when things went either started to go off or the threats started coming hard and they didn't know what to do and they stopped worshiping Yahweh and they started worshiping Baal. And this is the moment in the history of Israel where all of a sudden God would raise up a prophet and he raised up this prophet Hosea. And a lot of times what would happen is in the, in the start of these minor prophets, they would say, the Lord says, and it would be this prophet proclaiming, here's what God is saying to you, the Israelite people, where you have missed, where you've fallen short, where you have sinned, where you have messed up. If you don't repent and confess of your sin, judgment will be bought, brought upon you. But if you turn back, there's restoration, there's hope. God does something different with Hosea. God calls Hosea up as a prophet, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says, hey, listen, I want you to go marry a promiscuous woman. I want you to go marry someone, bring them into them home, love them, have children with them, knowing that they're gonna cheat on you every chance they get. All of a sudden, God raises up this prophet for more than just to come and be before the Israelite people and declare, hey, repent, turn back, here's where you've fallen short. He makes Hosea a living sign, a living message. And as Hosea becomes obedient to God, he marries this gal named Gomer, great name. When we had Alice, when we knew we were having our girl, I asked if we could bring that name to the hospital as a backup name. Abby said no. <laughs> married Gomer, who was known to be promiscuous, who was a prostitute most likely before they actually got married. Hosea was obedient to God, married her. They have three kids. And she was continuously adulterous, cheating on Hosea, breaking the marital covenant. And the whole goal and idea of this was one, for Hosea to recognize and feel the heartbreak of what it means to be cheated on and have someone that you're in a relationship with that is continuously unfaithful. He put Hosea in the spot of God, telling Hosea, hey, this is what I feel every time the Israelites are unfaithful. The Israelites, in going to the political parties and the strengths of their day, not worshiping God, but instead of worshiping idols, were cheating on God. Hosea was, in this metaphor, God, Gomer, and her, and her children were the Israelite people. And the goal of it was the, to allow the Israelites to see that they, when they would hear this message, because they would see Hosea, this prophet, married to this woman who continues to cheat on her, the law of the day actually would say she would be stoned and put to death. That's, like, that's what adultery would bring you if you were female, not if you're male. It's super unfair. But that's, that's the punishment. And yet Hosea never brought a charge against her. So he's given this image of how ultimately God kind of treats us. But the Israelites would call Hosea, like, Hosea, this is what your wife is doing. What are you doing? Like, why are you still with her? And all of a sudden, as they were questioning Hosea, what would come to mind was, oh, <laughs> This is how we treat and react to God. And then over the next eight chapters, we get past this story, this matter of the image, this real story of, of Hosea marrying Gomer, and, and, and Hosea then finally spits out, okay, here's what the Lord says, and pronounces judgment because of the economic sin and unfaithfulness that the Israelites have poured into. Pronounces judgment and wrath on the people of Israel, on the people of God, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their sin, because of their worship of idols. Next eight chapters. And then we get to chapter 11. And we get to one of God's final, final judgments. And it's a judgment of love. 
Not because all of a sudden God remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham to always keep his part of the deal with the Israelite people. To hold covenant to them saying, I'm gonna be faithful to you and love you no matter what. No, we get to this moment in chapter 11 of this judgment of love because we serve and live with a God who doesn't know how to do anything different. In our own sin, when we fall short and when we fail, when we are unfaithful, God's love is there waiting, challenging us to come back. He's inviting us into his love all of the time. Here's the big idea for tonight. God's love is something we are continually either being invited into or challenged to come back to. And as we go through chapter 11 of Hosea, we're gonna see five aspects of God's love at work and in play. So I'm gonna read verse one. It says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. The first aspect of God's love is a pain of God's love. There's a pain of God's love. There is heartache. There is a breaking in the heart of God when he sees his children and the people that he loves, that he is called not only into relationship with him, but called to go, especially as followers of Jesus, to proclaim the good news and to proclaim Jesus to the nations. There's a pain when his children are living in a way that ultimately is not what he designed them for. We are the sons and daughters of God. And yet there's a pain in God's love when we don't live into what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. God's love, first and foremost, compels him to do everything in his power to bring the people of Israel to repentance. He says, the more they were called, the more they went away. When they were a child, I loved them. I called them out of Egypt. But when they were called, the more they went away. It seems like, and, and why we, there's this repetition in the minor prophets. There was something within the soul and heart of the Israelite people that was hardened, that, that was pinned down to not want to fully step into the love and faithfulness of God. And I think it's for a multitude of reasons. I, I think, again, here's what he says. He says, the more I called them, the more they ran away. What I'm calling them into, yes, can be really difficult sometimes. Maybe it's I'm calling them into repentance, to, to, to come and step into and, and acknowledge and receive my forgiveness for their sin. Or maybe I'm even calling them into something new or something different, something that challenges them further than what they think they are capable of. I don't know about you, but I kind of relate a little bit to the Israelite people. There's aspects in my life when I look back, when I'm called into something that I kind of want to run away. And so when I look at the Israelites, I, I can kind of feel it a little bit. It's like, they're called into, one, repentance, come back, be restored. There's hope. God loves you. He is for you. Recognize where you've fallen short. Recognize your sin and your unfaithfulness. But I'm here. But to actually do that, one, there has to be an acknowledgement that we've messed up. To actually step into that can be difficult. And I think it's for this reason. Like we have a tendency to run because we base what is next or what has happened more on our own power, ability, and control 
than on God who is all-powerful, has all the ability, and is in complete control. And here's what I mean by this. I think when the Israelite people were called into repentance, to, re- to f- repent of their sin, to turn away from idol- idolatrous worship, to turn away from asking the political powers of the day the kings or, and countries surrounding them to help them, and instead go to God. There's an aspect where we focus more on ourselves than on who God is. There's an aspect where I don't want to or I don't feel like I can repent of the sin because the sin that I'm entangled in, where I've fallen short is so big and so bad that I have no control or ability to get past it and over it. You think, I think, and it's not just with sin. Like I said, maybe it's called into a new season. Maybe you've been called to help with ministry team. Maybe you've been called to join a small group. Maybe you've been called to, to extend love and faithfulness to a family member who is really, really tough to be in relationship with. Maybe you're called to a new group of people or a new person. Maybe you're called to a new career. Maybe you're called to a new degree. And, and we make these excuses and we run away when we recognize this calling of what God's asking us to step into because what we're doing is we're focusing more on our power, our ability, and what we can control than on switching and focusing on, okay, who is God? his power, his ability, that he is in control. Every, I feel like every time, this may sound weird, like every time I change a job in ministry, I always wrestle with, I don't think I can do it. I don't know if I'm good enough. Will people like me? Like I just I wrestle with that stuff. And what I'm doing in running away from the call in the moment is focusing more on me and what I can do or can't do than what God has done and what is going to do and will do. He says, I love them since they were children. I called them out of Egypt, called them out of slavery, called them into freedom. Yet the more I called, the more they ran away. I think sometimes for us, the more God calls us either into repentance and asking for forgiveness of sin or calling us into a new season of life, something that's different, something that seems challenging, but is overall good, the more we run away because we're focusing, especially with the situation, either on, on ourselves more than we are on who God is. Man, when I got the call from Steve Warner to put in an application to be the Oasis pastor uh, a few years ago, I immediately was super pumped because like Oasis was the ministry where I gave my life to Jesus. Like God used Oasis to literally change the course and direction of my entire life. So I was pumped about that, but then there were immediate thoughts of, I can't do this, I'm not good enough. Because in, in that call to step into a new season of what God had for me, I was focusing more on me than on who God is. This is what God is saying here. Every time he had to raise up a prophet, it was because the Israelites were focused more on what they were able to do, the power they wanted to keep, what they were good at, what they wanted to control, not on who God was, his ability and strength, that he is in control that he is powerful enough. The second aspect of God's love is, is he shows us, Hosea shows us through the word here, a picture of God's love. And it starts, God's picture starts with helping us remember. Here's verse three. It says, it was I who taught Ephraim, this is Israel. Uh, Ephraim was the uh, son of Joseph. Um, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, uh, just a metaphor for Israel, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. A picture that God is painting in the midst of this to help us remember and know God's love starts with helping us remember that God has always loved us and always been present. 
It helps us remember the, paint, the picture that he is painting here of God's love is saying, I've always been present. And it was I who was there from the beginning, who taught you how to walk. And, and this even idea of, of taught them how to walk, taking them by the arms. I have four kids now. I just had a baby December 15th. Super awesome. We're getting no sleep. It's super fun. But with my older three, every time like we wanted to teach them to walk, we didn't just say, hey, stand up and figure it out on your own, right? It was take them by the arms, right? Like force them to do the weird steps at six months old. Like, I don't know why we force kids to want to walk. I'm just telling you that you're going to feel this. You're going to force them to want to walk and then all of a sudden they're running around and you want to go back to the stage where they never moved. <laughs> but as a parent, my, my, my wife says, it's like, we're not raising kids, we're raising adults. Really real. <laughs> but something that we're doing there is like, we're teaching them when we show them the steps, right? You do hold them, you do this weird thing and all of a sudden they kind of get it and you just hold them by the hand so they don't fall down. They figure out what it means to move their legs and they're moving their legs. And then it's ultimately it's one hand and then there comes a time where they run off by themselves, and you never see them again. Super depressing and sad. But this image is God, this image of father and child, reaching down with his arms to train and to teach. Not just in the moment to be able to walk or to get through life, but to prepare them for what is about to happen. He's preparing them to be able to walk not just on their own, but to be able to handle anything, might, anything life may throw at them with the foundation that it is God who helps us. It is I who was there in the beginning, arms holding them, teaching them, preparing them for what's ahead, supporting them as a parent supports a child. And it says, but they don't even know or care that it was I who took care of them. I think we get on this road of disobedience, this road of focusing more on our ability, power, and control in a situation or circumstance, and then running to, wanting to run away from the calling that God has for us. We get on this road when we forget to remember. And so the picture that he's painting first starts with, how are we remembering? And then do we acknowledge, man, it was God who has been there, always present. In your worst moments, it was God who has been there. You're here now tonight because God has prepared and made a way that you would be sitting in the seat you're sitting in. Always present. And the second way that this idea of remembering that this, he's painting his pictures in verse four is we remember God treats our disobedience with understanding and our trouble with care. Verse four says, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. I bent down to feed them. This idea of, letting, uh, of leading with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. Um, it gives off this image of a farmer holding a rope. So back in the day, the way that they would farm, they would tie these yokes, uh, which is a farming equipment, to, to a couple of cows. And they, the farmer would have ropes and he'd hold these ropes and he would lead the cows down the field that they'd be able to plow uh, the field to be able to farm. I don't... I, I, who has a dog here? Who has a dog? Anyone, you got dogs? Y'all have dogs. You ever, I am too impatient. We, we have a dog. Her name is Emma. She's going to turn 10 in a month. And we were too impatient to teach her how to walk on a leash well. So she doesn't do it now. But I think of, when I see this, of leading with cords of human kindness, with ties of love, I think of a dog on a leash and teaching them to walk on a leash. It's, I can be oppressive and aggressive and drag the dog along when they're being disobedient, when they're trying to run away, or the healthy and good way to do it 
is when the line tugs. When the dog wants to go its own way, you stop and you hold lightly, never letting go, giving some slack when you can, maybe allowing the dog to explore. He's giving off his image of, I'm leading you, I'm holding onto the rope, never letting go, so I'm always there, waiting for you to figure out that where I'm leading you is good, how I'm leading you is for your benefit, not my own, it's for your good and my glory. My hands are always on the rope, always on it, ready for you when you're done exploring and figuring out life. When you've realized, oh, I've gone in the wrong direction, I'm there, hand on rope, to continue to walk with you when you figure it out. Never leaving, never forsaking, always there. He treats our disobedience with understanding. He treats our disobedience with understanding and our trouble with care. To them, I was one who lifts a child to the cheek, so he gives this image one of a farmer who gently, in love, is leading the cattle along. And also another image of a father. I think the hardest thing about being, there's a lot of hard things about just being a dad in general or a parent is like those moments your kid gets hurt, right? Um, and every time, every time, up until like the age of, man, my daughter's five, so it's still going on then. Wesley, who's eight now, still sometimes does it. When they get hurt, where do they go to first? Mom or dad. And what happens? Arms are up, carry me, you lift them up and you put them as close to you as close as you possibly can to your face. God says, the picture I'm painting of the love I have for you is one, I'm gonna lead you carefully, calmly, graciously, not oppressive, not aggressively, but also in those moments, maybe where, yes, you've fallen down, where you've fallen short, where you screwed up, or where you don't know what to do next or where to go, I'm gonna lift you up, I'm gonna hold you close because I care. It's a picture of a dad who will lift up the baby and put him close to the cheek, a child to the cheek, cheek to cheek. Because it's for some reason the most comforting thing for a toddler when they're hurt, to be as close as possible to the people that they know love them the most. I struggle a little bit sometimes, again, remembering that God has always carried me, he's provided for me, He's spoken to me and led me and he'll speak to me again. I wonder how to continue in the hard things of life. Um, I wonder how to continue sometimes and I struggle with what does it look like as I'm being called into now being a parent of four and what that's gonna look like and my own inability sometimes I feel like of, uh, of failing as a dad. I struggle with where God's called me in my job and thinking I'm good enough or not being able to do the task at hand. I struggle in my own marriage. I'm anxious about my own insecurities. Am I good enough? And really what's happening is God paints this picture of love. The question he's asking and what it comes back to is, am I just trusting God? One in his own love. Am I trusting God? That's not about how good I am at something. It's all about how great he is at everything. That's the picture he's painting, because he's there, he's present. He treats our disobedience with understanding and our trouble with care. The third aspect that we see, it's starting in verse eight, is we see the passion of God's love. He says this, oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or, dis or demolish you like Zeboim? 
My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. The passion of God, this overwhelming emotional reality of God's love, why he continues to come back, why no matter and despite our own disobedience, our own sin, our own failure, our own inability to really trust him in situations of every aspect of life, why he continues to come back again is not because he's just keeping a covenant that he knows he's supposed to keep or he thinks he's supposed to keep. He keeps coming back and he keeps inviting us into his love. It's because it's who he is. He said, literally, I can't give you up because that's not who I am. Because I made covenant with you. Yes, I made relationship with you, but my heart and the character of who I am is a character and a God of love. He says, my heart is literally torn within me and my compassion overflows. This idea is that all of Yahweh's feelings of compassion have gathered together, have gathered themselves within him and they can't help but overflow and come out because that's who God is. When our trouble is more than we can bear, it's never more than what God can bear. Your absence from him for all eternity, you not being in his presence, you not being with him forever, you not experiencing and knowing his love day to day is more than he can bear. So he continues to fight, continues to hold on to the rope, continues to invite and challenge you back into his love. And that's the gospel summed up. That's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, whoever believed in him. Right, like that's the gospel. It's just who God is. That's the love that he has. Verse nine, we have the patience of God's love. He says, no, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the holy one living among you and I will not come to destroy. I think my favorite part about this verse is it says, I am God and not a mere, mere mortal. God's love is patient because he will never break his covenant and he doesn't treat us like we treat each other. Right? When, when something wrong has happened to us, when something wrong has happened in the world, we immediately, now God is a God of justice and that's the battle and the wrestling here. Where does justice come into play? Where does mercy come into play? But what we do is we measure how we think God should react or act with us based off on how we treat each other. He said, my patience is good and great. I will not allow my anger to be fierce against you because I will not treat you like you treat each other. When something bad happens to us, are we immediately in the thought, in the mind, in the process? Like, that's cancel culture. Get rid of them. They're done. That's not how God acts. It's a divine patience that says, I'm not dealing with you as man would deal with you. When you fail, when you screw up, when you sin, when you don't trust me, I'm not a mere mortal, I'm God. My anger will not burn against you because I love you and I'm for you. And then finally, the last aspect of God's love is the predictability of God's love. Verse 10, for someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion, and when I roar, my people will return trembling from the west. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt trembling like doves. They will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again. And just this image, like this is Aslan, right? Chronicles of Narnia. Loud roar. 
what he's saying here, this is like a, a lion he shall roar, causes people to return to the land. And, and this simile, this, simile this, this picture of a lion roaring denotes the loudness one of the call of God to bring the people back, to call them back to himself, but also the guarantee and majesty that it's going to happen. So all over the world, the call is going to happen. It's going to go out as fierce and as loud and as big as a roar of a lion. And the sons and daughters over all of the earth are going to hear the Father's call and return to him. Now, this is an image and a picture of, of I think, the final days, right? I mean, there's theology that says when Jesus returns, the sons and daughters of God will finally be back again with Jesus, will be able to, to be with God in presence forever and eternity. But I also think it's a day-to-day thing. I go back to the weird <laughs> story I talked about with the dog walking. It's like, I'm not just going to sit there, right, and wait for my dog, Emma, to come back. It's weird that I, like, compared you guys to dogs and just see it. I'm not just going to sit there. I'm going to say, hey, come on. Emma, come here. That's what he's doing. He's continually calling us back into himself. And because he's powerful, because his love is overwhelming, because he never gives up, and he's always present, there's always an opportunity for us to step into and say yes, always. You see, God's love is predictable because God's love eventually wins out. God's love eventually wins out. Now, whether we step into that, whether we repent of sin, whether we trust him when he's calling us into a new season of life or new things, that's something different. But no matter what, from his end, God's love always wins out. And that brings me encouragement. That brings to my soul a sense of hope. Because now I no longer need to be worried or anxious or rest in my own insecurities or what the future may hold. He's inviting me to repent of my lack of trust in my sin and saying, it's not up to you to overcome this, to forgive yourself. I've already done it through Jesus. The call is loud. Are you going to respond? The call is loud. Where is he calling you? Where is he inviting you to experience his love again? Where is he challenging you to let go of self, to confess sin, and to turn back, and to say yes? And the call is always there. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the start of 2023, for the return of our weekly meetings, of our gatherings on Sunday night to be able to worship you, to hear your word. But God, I thank you for your love. I thank you that it's never ending or unfailing. I thank you that over and over again in your word, you give yourself image of a father who cares and loves a child from the beginning all the way to the end. You never give up on us. And so as we enter into this new semester and school year, would we take up the call? Would we learn what it means to not rest and trust in our own insecurity ability, power, or strength, but to trust in you. One, first and foremost, for forgiveness of sin. To trust in you for freedom 
from sin, to trust in you, to step into what you're calling us, whether it's a new, again, career, relationship, people group, person, to love on, to be faithful to, to share the gospel with, would we trust you? And would we say yes? We thank you that your love is always present, that it is never failing, that it sometimes feels hard, but you never give up. We love you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.